Welcome to the Leader Think Podcast, where we discuss personal growth, human performance, and culture change. This is your host, Philip Grison. Thank you for joining me on this path. I hope you enlighten others along the way. Hello, everyone. Today, let's talk about stupid safety rules and how we can create rules that are smarter. So giving credit where credit is due, I got this idea from Do Safety Differently by Conklin and Decker. They say in the book that we should ask people, what is the stupidest rule that we have? Obviously, this sounds pretty judgmental. So why even label rules as stupid? When you ask someone, what is the dumbest safety rule on this project? You will always grab their attention. No matter how disengaged people are, when you ask that question, they immediately start paying attention. There's a little shock factor there. Workers rarely have any say in what the rules are, but they are the ones who have to comply with these rules. They have to comply with these rules with limited resources and time constraints. And the rules don't always fit the realities of getting the job done. There are always rules that they think are stupid because they don't fit the real work in the real world. You know, there's an inherent disconnect between management and the front line, and that's normal, and it will always exist. But having a brutally honest conversation like this, it brings those groups together. It brings with it the admission that management doesn't know all the grimy details of what it really takes to comply with the rule. It also brings humility from management. It puts the worker in the driver's seat. It empowers them as the subject matter expert. We move away from the concept of management being superior and the worker being inferior. When we ask this question, what's the dumbest rule we have? The worker is now the one placed in the role of teacher. Teach me what you know about living inside our workplace systems. Teach me what works and what doesn't work. Regardless of all the titles on the work chart, for a moment, we have placed the worker in the role of teacher. This creates an opportunity for some real learning. People like to talk about themselves. They like to talk about their lives and their experiences. When you ask people to talk about themselves or tell me what the dumbest rule is we have here, they actually like you more. They're drawn to you because you created a pleasure response in their brain by asking them to tell you more about their world, about their work life. It definitely takes humility to do this work too with a genuine heart, especially if you are in the safety department. Often those who create the rules are placed in some kind of position where they have to enforce those rules. Now, I wish safety wasn't always the ones enforcing the rules, but unfortunately, they often are. If we in safety ask, what is our dumbest rule? We are really asking, what is the dumbest creation that we made? And, you know, we might feel some pride and ownership of that rule. So in these conversations, we can't defend why we came up with the rule. We have to genuinely ask, is my rule stupid? And then act on it if it is. Not everyone is emotionally ready to do this work. But if you are, it can be so fruitful. 
When we are genuine with this conversation, we can learn important details to help us modify our rules or eliminate them to better fit with the realities of work. I don't think any of us want stupid rules. We will have rules, but the smarter they appear to the workers, the more likely they are to actually comply with them. Even better, if we involve workers in modifying those rules or even creating them, they will have a sense of ownership and pride in that work. The same ownership and pride that can encourage the safety department to hold on with a death grip to a dumb rule is now transferred to the people who have to comply with them. Doing this work actually creates buy-in. Often people tell me that workers aren't bought into the safety culture. What are they not buying into? Dumb rules that don't actually work every day in every scenario in a dynamic industry? Combine this with no one asking their opinion and instead just telling them what is dangerous like they don't already know and why the rule's good for them without any desire to hear their opinions on it. Well, no wonder they aren't bought in. Modifying dumb rules to make them smarter with the input of the worker increases buy-in. It also increases buy-in for other workers who did not participate in the rule modification process. Later on, when some new worker says a rule is dumb, other workers who helped create that rule may say, hey, wait a minute, we created that rule. This is not some dumb rule that somebody in a cubicle came up with. This isn't something the government came up with. We created this rule by telling management what actually works in the real world. So even when other workers aren't involved in this kind of process, they can experience the influence of increased buy-in from their fellow co-workers. All right, so let's look at some dumb safety rules and see if they really fit the realities of work. I'm going to get a little technical here, so maybe not everybody's familiar with this stuff, but I'm going to start with call-it-all type C soil. Within OSHA's trenching and excavation standard, you can classify soil as A, B, or C, and then determine the appropriate protective system and how you use it based on that type of soil. You know, sloping doesn't always work. You need a lot of room to slope a trench according to type C. And if you had a four-foot wide trench that's about eight feet deep, you could need 20 feet of space just to slope it right. Then you have to put that excavated dirt somewhere, and that could take up another 20 feet of space. And considering you need to move the excavated soil back from the edge, have some more room for equipment and utilities, you need easily maybe 60 feet of space to even do this kind of work in some small little eight-foot deep trench. And all that work is time-consuming. The reality is you may not even have the room to do this. So contractors use trench boxes and hydraulic shoring and other things when, when real estate is limited to slope a ditch. So general contractors in the southeast, they often have this rule, call it all type C soil, because a lot of our dirt actually is type C. From their view, it actually makes sense. Let's just go with the worst case scenario. That's quite common to make sure everyone is safe. But here's where it gets dumb. OSHA says we have to classify soil as A, B, or C. But they also say an engineer can create a protective system and we can do whatever the engineer says. 
So assuming that this engineer is actually intelligent and created some kind of system that hopefully won't kill people, maybe that engineer's advice is actually a good idea. And that's what trench boxes and hydraulic shoring, that's what they are. They're engineered systems. When workers are trained well and they read the manual for shoring systems that engineers design, they often find a different story than what OSHA said. They often find four soil types, A, B, C60, and C80. In other words, some very useful trench protective systems don't have this singular type C soil. They have two Cs, C60 and C80. And what OSHA calls C is what the engineers in the manual call C80. Now, again, I realize this is a lot of technical stuff, but consider what the worker is now thinking. What does that general contractor mean by call it all type C? Are they saying call it all C80? Or are they saying we can call it C60 or C80? Regardless of your experience with trenching work, hopefully you can see how this could be confusing to the educated in soil mechanics and not fit the realities of work. But I'm not done yet, and I need to bore you with a little more technical info. When utilities or pipes in the ground are perpendicular to each other, a trench box can't just always fit on top of them. It could easily damage those perpendicular utilities. But hydraulic shoring is a wonderful protective system designed to save lives in those scenarios. It's more flexible at fitting around different utilities going in different directions. In other words, hydraulic shoring was designed to fit the realities of work. But here's the kicker. It's only allowed in C60 and not C80. So back to the rule. If we tell a contractor, call it all type C, does that rule mean we're calling it all C80 and now we are not allowed to use hydraulic shoring on the job? Or does the rule mean we can use hydraulic shoring? And hopefully you get it. Does the rule actually fit the realities of the work? And I think we can say no. If we wanted to create a smarter rule, we would engage those who do the work. And we might find through learning from those who do the job, the subject matter experts that call it all C60 or C80, depending on what they're doing, they might have a rule that better fits the realities of work. And both parties could win in a scenario like this. Maybe the workers suggest we call it C80 unless we can prove it's a C60, and that's okay. And so the general contractor still has a rule that plans for the two worst-case scenarios in trenching, but also allows the flexibility for getting the job done in the real world with systems that actually work in those scenarios. Without knowledge of how work is done from those who do the work, we can create rules that are just too rigid and sometimes flat-out infeasible in the real world. We need smart rules. Here's something else to think about. All safety defenses bring with them a new hazard. In many safety defenses, 
can actually be a bad idea in certain scenarios. When we think about a new rule as a safety defense, probability and severity should guide our thinking. So here's a real-world example. Taglines to control a load on a crane can be a good thing or a bad thing based on the scenario. But some companies have a rule, thou shalt always use a tagline, even when it's a bad idea. If our greatest fear is losing control of a load, if that's the severity probability thinking, then a tagline could be very useful. But if the more probable outcome is that the tagline could get caught on something like a person and pull them out of the building, then a tagline could actually be a terrible idea. And this actually happened to a friend of mine. So I have a friend, and he was a supervisor for a glass installer. And he was working for a contractor that demanded a tagline must be used for every pick, no matter what. It's the rule. And this tagline inadvertently wrapped around a worker's leg and pulled him out of the building. Now, luckily, the worker was tied off with personal fall arrest, and so he didn't die. But the rule actually contributed to pulling this guy out of the building. And so my supervisor friend, he went to the general contractor and asked, hey, look, in our scenarios, in our unique work, can we skip this tagline rule? Because we might pull our people out of the building. And the general contractor said, no, the rule's the rule. So my supervisor friend, he decided to shorten the tagline as short as possible. So you'd have to like reach up and grab it just to stop from pulling his guys outside the building. And so in, in that scenario, it wasn't really like helping control the load, but they were complying with the rule. Again, can we see how some rules can be perceived as stupid? Here's another one that I think a lot of people encounter. Tying off on a ladder. Now, sometimes that can actually be smart. Like if you're right up against an edge where there's a major drop-off and you're working on a ladder above the guardrail. Okay, in that scenario, if I don't want to fall over the guardrail, then tying off on a ladder might seem smart. But what if we don't even have the clearance distance for that fall protection to work? Maybe it's actually more dangerous. And along with probability, severity thinking, another thing we should think about is the dose. You know, Paracella says the difference between a remedy and a poison is the dose. In toxic specific hazards, we often consider the dose. And what if we applied that concept to fall protection or tying off on a ladder? What's the dose? In other words, What's the duration of exposure? If I'm making someone tie off on a ladder, am I increasing their duration to the exposure? For example, if they were going to go up a ladder, do something, and come right back down, but now they have to go up a ladder with some tools and equipment and an anchor point and spend some time installing that and then take the tools back down and then go up there and tie off to the anchor point and then do the job and then go back up and disconnect from the anchor point and then get their tools and then go remove the anchor point and then come back down? Did we significantly increase the duration to a fall exposure? 
So again, I get it that sometimes tying off on a ladder actually is a good idea. But there are times it's actually stupid. Let severity, probability, and duration of exposure guide our thinking. So following along with that type of thinking, here's the last one I want to discuss. The everyday, every single time philosophy. And it's usually phrased in terms such as, we require a critical lift plan every single day for every single crane pick. Or we require a JSA every day for every task. Or something like that. I always think, no, you don't. There's no way people are doing a full-blown critical lift plan reviewed by a second party for every single bundle of rebar, conduit, pallet of drywall, skip pan full of stuff that flies up and down every day. Now, we might say we require a JSA for every single task, but what we're really saying is we have a bunch of copied JSAs with different dates on them. Because nobody is doing that stuff every single day for every single task or every single crane pick. Again, let severity, probability, and duration of exposure guard our thinking. A JSA is a wonderful tool when used appropriately for the most critical of tasks. A critical lift plan is an awesome system, an awesome defense for critical picks. The last thing we want to do is cheapen those things by saying you have to write one for everything, every single day. That could actually lead to complacency. People say they don't want workers to be complacent. Well, doing that is a great way to make them complacent. So the main idea here is that some rules we create with all good intention, just don't fit the realities of work, the realities of advanced safety management thinking, and how people's brains work. Sometimes they just make the job harder. Sometimes they actually make the task more dangerous. Sometimes they create and widen the disconnect between the frontline and management. Rules should be written with input from the subject matter experts, as in those who do the work where the rule would apply. Rules should consider severity, probability, and duration of exposure. All safety defenses can bring a new hazard with them, and rules can do that too. Safety programs just get bigger and bigger. But how often do we go through them and start deleting ineffective, outdated rules that just don't match advanced safety management concepts? You know, at least once a year, we should review our policies and procedures. And maybe we should ask, what are we going to delete? What rule are we going to get rid of should always be part of that conversation. And if you can't find anything you think you should delete, just go ask the worker, what's the dumbest safety rule that we have here? Have a beautiful week. Hey there. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave me a review. If you want to connect further, reach out at leaderthink.com.